Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 7. Thank you, Keith, very much for that great reminder that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you're just getting started with us, we are going through the book of Revelation, and by way of reminder, verse 1 says that the title of this book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's keep the big picture in mind that this is the apocalypse, the unveiling an opportunity for us by faith to see Jesus Christ in his glory. But one of the things that we have been discussing is the fact that there has been more than one way that people have interpreted the book of Revelation. And for some of you, this has perhaps at first caused a bit of confusion. In fact, one brother said to me, but I don't understand how you can have another view. Everybody I read holds the same thing. And I gave him an analogy. I said, well, if I watch the five and Tucker Carlson, I'm going to have the same perspective, and I'm not bringing politics in at all. But what I want to suggest is that as we're um, allowing you to see other views of the book of Revelation, the intention here is not to confuse, nor to confound, nor to upset you, but rather to help you understand that what we're sharing is not some new and novel thing that there have been saints who have been studying and reading and interpreting the book of Revelation since the first century. And throughout the ages, great men, even the reformers, men like Calvin, Luther, later men like Spurgeon, have had a perspective on the, on the book of Revelation that's very different from the one that is being taught today. That does not make the one that is being taught today any more right or any less right. The point is this, that as we're going through this book, remember, as I've mentioned, in Revelation 4 through 19, there are a couple primary ways people read that section. Many of you have been exposed to Tim LaHaye or some aspect of this section that's, that's basically said, this is concerning the future seven-year tribulation, and we're not going to be here. This is just what's going to go on. And for most of you, if that's all you've ever heard, it hasn't even crossed your mind. Wait. I thought that was as clear as John 3.16, when in reality, it's even more important to understand that there are major doctrines in the Bible for which there is no wiggle room. Anybody who adds to or changes the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is under the curse of God. But when it comes to these minor doctrines in terms of how do you interpret the book of Revelation, are we going to go through the tribulation? Let's remember that these are not things that we should divide over. Some people believe tongues are for today, some don't, but that doesn't mean they're heretics. Interestingly, I was teaching on a, a passage in the future in school this week, and um, I was talking about views of the millennium, and I said, but whichever view you hold, it's not the end of the world. And then I realized, wait, yes it is. <laughs> but understand what I mean by that, it, it, it's not heresy versus you know, pure sound doctrine. So, when we're going through the book of Revelation, we saw in chapters 6 that, that Jesus is opening seven seals of a scroll. And, and the futuristic view is that all of these are going to take place in a very short period of time, a seven-year period. Some have seen these as already happening in the first century. And then others, we suggested, are seeing these as representative of events that are occurring throughout this age, from the time of Jesus till his return. And so when I preached a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 6, we saw the sixth seal, in my judgment, was clearly the second coming of Jesus. That was my opinion. Now, last week, Austin, Pastor Austin, 
introduced you to uh, the first half of chapter 7. Now, one big perspective to remember here. Chapter 7 is an interlude. Okay, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six seals, and then chapter 7 is a pause. We don't have the seventh seal. And in chapter 7, we have John having two visions of two groups of people. The first group is 144,000. The next group is an innumerable number of people. And throughout the history of the church, there have been various ways of seeing this. Now, for some of you, the only thing you've ever heard is that, of course, this is in the future when God is going to select 12,000 Jews from these 12 tribes. He's going to save them at the beginning of the tribulation, and they're going to be evangelists during the seven years. Okay? Thus saith the Lord. May I suggest to you that while that's possible, it has not been widely held until probably the 1600s or later, and while it may be true, I would want you to think through, it's not as black and white as it first seems. There's nothing in here that says, these are the sealed evangelists that go around preaching during the tribulation. So I'm fine with that perspective. But I think as Austin shared, when he suggested that this 144,000 represents all believers who have been sealed by God, selected, and then will be protected throughout this age, that that's not some weird, novel, silly view understanding that the book of Revelation is full of symbolism and when people say I just want to interpret it literally sometimes if you try that it can can borderline ridiculousness so so when I read in chapter 9 about a locust who has great wings and, and a breastplate and a tail and I go that's an Apache helicopter I'm going maybe but let's recognize that it's quite possible that some of these numbers and and descriptions are symbolic. And so I'm okay. And I think that it's quite possible that that 144,000 is indeed representative of believers throughout the church age. Even if we were to limit it to say they're Jewish believers. These are those who have been called of God during the church age. Well, while the Jewish conversions during the church age is a minority. We know that. The Bible says in Romans 11, God has hardened the Jews. Even so, I think it is very helpful to, to envision the idea that all of us who are believers have been chosen by God and are sealed by His Spirit. And that is designed to give us comfort. That is designed to give us security. That is designed to motivate us to persevere. So as we come to this second half of the vision, 9 through 17, we're now going to see another crowd, and we're going to ask the question, who is this crowd? Okay? So, from the futurist perspective, this is a very small group of people in one sense because it's, this is the people who have been saved during the tribulation. Okay? And I'm, I'm fine with that perspective. I don't necessarily fully agree with it, but those of you who have been taught this, you will be told that, have been told that this is the group of people who are martyred during the tribulation. And I want us to read it that way, and then we're going to loop back around and say, is there another possibility of who that's talking about? So, one thing we can tell you is this. You don't have to go to the movies to, to know that heaven is for real. Number two, if you want to know what heaven is like, read the book of Revelation. Whoever said, eye has not seen or ear has heard, we don't know what heaven's like, has obviously not spent enough time in Revelation is misquoting 1 Corinthians 2 because there's a great deal. In fact, I would like to say that I spent a lot of time in heaven this week because as I studied this passage, I found myself in the evening laying in my bed, waving my palm branch and going, 
be to our God forever. And I was, I was enraptured up to go, this is a beautiful passage. So I'm okay if you go, hey, this is talking about martyred saints. But let's just look at it and then say, what does God have for us? What did the first century people have as they read this? Were they going, hey, we're not going to be here, but that's pretty cool. So look at verse 9. John says, after these things, so we just saw this crowd of 144,000. I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Now, what I want you to see here is in 9 and 10, he sees the redeemed people of God praising God and the Lamb for their salvation. Now, is, just ask yourself as we're reading this, is this only those who have been saved and martyred during the tribulation? Or is this representative of all believers of all time from all over the world? So let's see what it says. I, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. They were from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And two things that describe them, they were clothed in white robes. So we want to come back and say, what's that mean? And they had palm branches in their hands. Okay, what, why? And what were they saying? They cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God. In other words, salvation belongs to God. Salvation comes from God. He is the source from him, to him, through him. Salvation is all from God who sits on the throne. And he says, and by the way, to the lamb, Jesus. So he focuses on God and Jesus. And then it says in verse 11 that there's a second group. So there's a redeemed group of people who are praising God. The second group are angels. So beginning in verse 11, let's look what the angels do. The redeemed praise God. Now the angels praise God. It says all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And what did they say? Well, they began to praise God for a series of his attributes. But I want you to think about this as you read this, that each of these attributes of God relate to the great doctrine of salvation. So they, these angels begin to praise God and they sandwich their praise with an amen at the front door and an amen at the back door. So the angels say amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this great multitude praises God. The angels praise God. Now third, this great multitude of people are defined. Who are these folks? And that's found in verse 13 and 14. One of the elders answers saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? Who, who is this, John? And it's obviously a almost a rhetorical question in the sense of he's saying, I know who they are. Do you know who they are? And John confesses his ignorance. Verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, I am absolutely fine with this interpretation that this is a select group of individuals who got saved during this seven-year period. But be careful, even the idea that they're martyred. The text doesn't say anything about them being martyred. 
okay? So many of you have been just, this, this is what it is. This, these are the people who got saved during the tribulation. Pastor Tom, how can you argue with that? They've come out of the great tribulation. Well, I want to suggest when we loop around is that there are various ways to interpret the phrase great tribulation. It's not quite as cut and dry. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I am a fellow partaker in the tribulation that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, Jesus says to one of the churches, because of their sin, I'm going to throw them into great tribulation. So the entire argument hinges on this one phrase. It's those who have come out of the great tribulation. And you go, does that prove that it's got to be just a little group of, or, or a multitude? Because number one, how many people could possibly be saved in, in a seven-year period that no one could count them, right? This group is not able to be numbered. When in fact, that sounds a lot more like the Abrahamic promise that God will save and, and, and raise up a mighty seed of the descendants of Abraham who would be all believers of all time who would be unable to be numbered. So, if you are um, led to feel that this is just a select group, that doesn't uh, make you good or bad, right or wrong, okay? That's fine. Now, lastly, that defined these redeemed, but let's, let's look finally at their reward. What's going to happen to them? Because whether you see these as a little group of people in the future, or whether you see that, hey, this is talking about us, either way, the last part is talking about us. I assure you that, that the reward in verses 15 through 17 is not going to be limited now, only if you get martyred during the tribulation do you get these benefits. Sorry, that's not in your plan. But instead, this is clearly to all believers of all time. And think of these first century believers who are being persecuted, ostracized. They can't buy food. They're being kicked out of their homes. Their possessions are being confiscated. Some of them have already been martyred. And they're thinking, this world stinks. And, and, and the Spirit of God is leading John to say, yeah, but look what's waiting for you. Your present agony doesn't compared to your future ecstasy. The sufferings of this world don't compare to the glory that is to be revealed to you. So go back and read your policy again and, and hang in there. So look at the benefits of those who, who are sealed and selected and protected by God and endure through whatever this tribulation is. Look at verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night. And the word serve there is a, a clear term that's used of priest. This is not the normal word for slave serving God. They serve him in a priestly fashion. And we know that God has made every believer a priest and a king. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. Reminiscent of the Exodus when God protected them from the sun in their 40-year wanderings in the, in the desert. Verse 16, a quotation from Isaiah. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Why? For the Lamb, here comes Jesus again, in the center of the throne shall, number one, be their shepherd. That's what shepherds do. They protect their sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So in this future day, as we are in the presence of Almighty God, the Lamb, Jesus, in the center of the throne shall be our shepherd and shall guide them.
to the springs of the water of life. What does that mean? And by the way, God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, many of you have been told this is just a select group during the seven years. I'm going to suggest that it's, it's not. That in, in fact, I think it's representing all believers of all times. And so let's loop around and, and let's just take a few moments to walk through this. So we want to begin by asking the question, who gets the praise here? Very quickly, over and over again, to God and to the Lamb, to God and to the Lamb, to God and to the Lamb. We know that God exists in a triune being. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. But in this age, the Bible tells us that the Father has chosen to glorify the Son. The, the Spirit of God, Jesus said, did not come to speak of his own, but he will glorify me. So the Spirit of God, like a great landscape light, doesn't go, look at my halogens. He goes, look at how I'm pointing you to Christ. So the focus here is God and Jesus. God and Jesus. The Lamb in the center of the throne and God keep getting praised. Number two, let's ask this question. Who does the praising? The first group is the redeemed. These people who are praising God are those who are redeemed. And I want to answer this first question. Are they the same group as the 144,000? There's no demanding, conclusive proof in my mind that they can't be. Some would say it can't be the same group. These are numbered. These are unable to be numbered. Okay. Would it be possible then to suggest that maybe the 144,000 would be believing Jews? and the innumerable group would be believing Gentiles? Is that far-fetched? The fact that they're described as innumerable certainly sounds like the Abrahamic promise to God that one day he will have believing descendants from every tribe and nation. In addition, later in the book, we find that all unbelievers are sealed with the mark of the beast, which again, some might say, oh, that's only in the future. But all believers are sealed by God and kept to persevere. So, are they the same group as 144,000? Maybe. I'm okay with that. Maybe it's representative of all believers, the second group, which that's what I think. I think this is talking about all believers. I'm fine if you go, no, it's just a group in the tribulation. But I think you and I should see ourselves there and ask ourselves, why are these people in white robes? Well, number one, they washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you might want to ask yourself, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing blood? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If your robe ain't washed, you ain't going to heaven, if you'll pardon my poor grammar. So these people are redeemed, and they are cleansed from their sin. But interestingly, in, the, in this passage, having white robes is not just because you're redeemed, it's because you persevered. And your perseverance through the fires has refined you. In fact, in chapter 3, Jesus spoke of one group who he's not sure is going to enter in, he says, because they've soiled their garments. He counsels the final church in Laodicea. He says, you think you're needing of nothing, but you're naked, and you better buy from me white robes. And so redeemed people are also people who persevere, are people who by God's grace are kept and they don't go back to their sins and stay there. And they don't turn their back on their confession to Christ. And let's ask quickly, why do they have palm branches? Well, the world's a palm branch for it. I literally found myself just as I was, uh, some of you know the song, Salvation Belongs to Our God. 
I, I, just, I felt, I just started going like this because I was just picturing myself praising God with a palm branch. And in scripture, palm branches, primarily that comes out of the Exodus pattern when God had the, the Feast of Tabernacle. They remembered the palm branches, remind them that God redeemed them by the lamb that was offered in the Passover and that the palm branches were representative of God protecting them. And that's why they had the Feast of Booths where they would build these little huts of, 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 of palm branches. And so as, as we think about being in heaven, we're washed by the blood of Christ. He kept us through our troubles and he protected us. And also palm branches were symbolic of celebration. Even, even in other cultures, they celebrated by palm branches. Praise God, Jesus won, Jesus won. We're wave, waving our victory banners, hallelujah. But then let's quickly say, who else is praising God? Why are the angels praising God? They didn't get saved. But the Bible tells us that God is, is, is unfolding such a glorious plan on planet Earth that it's not just about us people. We are not the pinnacle and sole purpose of this creation. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us that God has, is, is, is bringing Gentiles into the church so that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Angels are longing, we learn from 1 Peter 1, to look into the things of salvation. Angels rejoice, we read in Luke 15, when a sinner gets saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, women ought to have their head covered because of the angels. And so angels join in this glorious praise. And while they don't experience personal salvation, they can praise God for their election because the Bible describes two groups of angels, the elect angels and Satan's angels. And so these angels are praising God. Now, why? Why are all of these people praising God? They're praising God for his provision of salvation and its demonstration of his worthiness to be praised. Why are they praising God? They're not going, praise God because I feel the warmth of his embrace. Praise God for nature. No, they're praising God salvation. That's what they're praising God for, salvation. And then the angels are contemplating these great attributes of God, his wisdom, his power, his blessing, these, these attributes for which we should learn to glorify him. And then I want to ask a simple question as, as we wind down here. What has happened to these redeemed people? What does John mean when he says, these are those who have come out of great tribulation? Some would say, they, they made it through the hundred and or the, the seven years, and a lot of them got martyred. Fine. But I would, I would suggest that perhaps a better way to read this is these are every single believer who has persevered by God's grace and has been enabled by God to stay true to their faith until their entrance into glory. And for that reason, they're praising God that he has kept them that they're able to sing through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. And is God's grace that brought me safe thus far. And his grace will lead me home. And so my personal opinion is that this great tribulation is not limited to some future period, but the entire plan of history on planet Earth since the time of Christ has involved 
Christians suffering. Not all Christians have suffered martyrdom, but all Christians suffer in some respect. We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are continually bombarded to compromise our faith. And now, more than ever in American culture, we're being baited to bail on the Bible. And yet, at the end of the day, these type of things begin to weed out and sort out who's the real deal. The scripture says, the Lord knows those who are his, but let those who name the name of Christ depart from wickedness. And as we look around and we see Christians uh, just completely turning away from the, the word of God and the clear principles of the gospel, we're reminded that, wow, not everyone who raised their hand and at Backyard Bible Club is a true believer, but that those who stay true to Christ, those who persevere to the end, those who don't turn back and say, I don't believe that stuff anymore. I don't like what this has led to. And beside, I miss my old lifestyle. But those who do persevere are reminded that it was only through God's enablement. It wasn't because I had a little more gumption. And then lastly, I want to ask this question. Why, why describe heaven like this? There's mystery to this. For example, he says they serve God day and night in the temple, okay? And you're like, that's so cool. I can't wait to put my hand on the temple. Well, again, there's a mystery here because later on in Revelation 21, John says in the new heavens and the earth, I saw no temple for the Lord God Almighty is the temple. So the big picture of, of, of what we see here is this description is one of many descriptions that John's going to give us of what heaven will be like. And in this particular picture, where he sends, we will go. We will walk with him. Whatever Jesus leads us through eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Don't picture yourself as up in heaven playing a harp and floating in the clouds. In the final eternal rest of the believers, we will be on earth and God himself shall dwell among us. And he himself will be our God, and we will be his people, those who have been enabled by God to persevere. And those of you who are struggling, saying, I don't know if I really want to follow Jesus, listen, the Bible says, as it describes the new heavens and the new earth and those who are with God, it says, outside are those who are cowardly and abominable, those who are like, I love my life, I don't... I don't want to turn away from my sins. Liars and immoral people, those who are unwilling to endure by the grace of God, those who, who show themselves to not be genuine believers. And so this ought to cause me to go, wow, this is so cool. One day I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to worship him. This is no different from Revelation 5. When the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are bowing down, they're praising God. Worthy is the Lamb. We, this is not new, folks. When I was a younger Christian, we used to sing, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And we'd sing about when the roll is called up yonder. But what a glorious future we have. And so, yeah, life is tough. And life is full of bumps and, and, and bends and things that we didn't see coming. But I'll tell you why I think John says, and God's going to wipe away tears. You're like, why the tears? Well, in Revelation chapter 21, it says, 
There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, ready for this, and no more death. I'm going to suggest, you want to know what the number one cause of tears on planet Earth is? Death. And I'm not sure there's a close second, and you could disagree with me, and that's fine. But you know what it says? And God will wipe away their tears. Immediately after it says there's no more death. Some of you still are reeling from the tears because death has come to visit your family. But one day, if you're a born-again believer washed in the blood of Jesus, God's going to wipe them away. And we'll have no more sorrow. Could I get some, could we say amen? Could somebody show that we're not the dead in Christ and we're going up first at the rapture? If you can't get excited about this, this is glorious. And, and, and I'm not here to suggest that we're all just like silly, you know, jumping around and let's run around with our banners. But folks, you say, what is my takeaway here? Well, whether or not you think this is a small group in the future or whether you want to join me, in, and by the way, it's not just me. There's, throughout history, a whole lot of people have read it this way, that this is representative of all believers. From the little tyke who gave his heart to Jesus at four years old, and died of leukemia at six, he's as worthy in the presence of God as Wycliffe and Huss and others who have lost their lives and shed their blood for Christ. And who knows what the future has for us? But one thing we do know about the future is those of us who have been called by God, sealed by God, are going to be kept by God. Because he who began a good work in us will perform it till the day of Christ. So I don't particularly want to sing about how I'm going to hold on to Jesus but I love to sing about how he holds on to me. And when Benjamin puts up there, he will hold me fast. I go, thank you, Jesus. Hold me closer, Lord. Hold me, Lord, and help me not to turn back. And so, struggling Christian, here's the takeaway. Let's praise God for our salvation. And let's persevere through our earthly sufferings because we're looking forward to eternity with our Savior. So let me say it again. Salvation belongs to our God and wisdom and power and glory. Let's praise God, not just today. Somebody sent me a devotional this week on singing. Singing. The Bible says we're to sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. If you don't have any songs about salvation, get some songs about salvation and download them into your heart, not your iPod. Download them into your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you so that you can walk through life. And in the midst of your tears and trials, say, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We're not a bunch of fanatics. We're blood-washed saints. And if we can't bring ourselves to praise God for our salvation, something needs to be changed in our heart. And I'll be the first one to say, I don't jump up every morning going, praise God for my salvation, but I want to. And if some of you go, how weird to sing about blood and praise and salvation, you ain't ready for heaven. Because that's what we're going to do there. And if you don't want to do it here, you're probably an unlikely candidate for there. You might not even want to be there. But if this morning, God might be touching your heart and saying, yikes, am I even going to be there? Jesus said, all who come to me, I won't cast out. He won't say, now you're just a little too dirty. What in the world? That, not even tithe can wash away that stain. You did what? No. Arms open wide. My little granddaughter, two years old, 
I said, do you know any songs about Jesus? I said yesterday, she said, deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide, and that precious crimson tide is still flowing. Oh, precious is that flow that washed me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We just celebrated it, and now we surrender to it. If you've never come to Jesus, the best you know how, doesn't matter if you're Methabacterian, an atheist, Catholic, just run to Jesus and say, Lord, please forgive me of all my sins. Wash me and help me to persevere. Help me to love you, trust you, follow you, and obey you. Because one day, you're going to call me home. And we're going to be regathered. So those of you who still have tears as you're waiting to see that loved one again, it's coming. Hallelujah, it's coming. But in the meantime, some of you are wandering around, half in, half out. And the Lord Jesus, the shepherd, says, listen, I bore you, 1 Peter 1, 2, I bore my, your sins in my body on the cross, that you being dead to sin might live to righteousness. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. If you're a Christian, let's join together like little sheep. Because you know what? We're lambs being led by a lamb. And if you're away from the Lord, come on home. If you're walking with the Lord and struggling, hold your ground. And if you're not a believer, come and get washed. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for your word. We praise you for a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we leave, Lord, may we not leave you behind. May the Lamb not only be in the center of the throne, but may the Lord Jesus be in the center of our hearts and in the center of my mind and in the center of my life throughout this week. Keep us, Lord. The devil is strong. The world is strong. Our flesh is weak. Keep us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.